so we felt that, you know, as an outside time, 10 years made sense to us. I totally get the advocates and the governor and Scott Stringer saying do it faster. And I think that do it faster is a good mantra, maybe. I think the key is everyone has to be driving this home um, and operating like we want to do it in three. That's fine. You know, live like you want to do it in three, and it'll happen, and in that way, it'll happen as soon as it possibly can. But there's, you know, there's no question, both from the policy side, the fiscal side, the political side, um, there is a lot to do here. Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And I'm Carol Kellerman from the Citizens Budget Commission. Thanks for joining us here on this episode. If you've missed any previous episodes, you can find them at the Gotham Gazette website, the Citizens Budget Commission website, or any of your podcast platforms. We've had a lot of great guests and uh, featured a bunch of CBC reports and analysts, so you should check out Uh, the episodes we've had so far this year as we wind down our last few episodes of 2017. But don't worry, we'll be back early in 2018, and we have a couple more good ones after today, this year. So today we are joined by Michael Jacobson, Executive Director of the CUNY Institute for State and Local Governance and a Correction Commissioner under former Mayor Giuliani. Carol will introduce Michael further, and in doing so, provide today's data point, but welcome, Michael. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Today's data point is 10 years, the amount of time the de Blasio administration says it will take to close the jails on Rikers Island. A commission convened at the request of New York City Council Speaker Melissa Mark Viverito and chaired by former State Chief Judge Jonathan Littman issued a report this past April urging that Rikers be closed and that inmates be moved and located at facilities near courthouses and civic centers throughout the boroughs. The commission approach has been largely endorsed by the mayor, but some advocates argue that the closure should be achieved more quickly. Our guest today, Michael Jacobson, is a member of the commission, generally known as the Lipman Commission, which issued the report. Michael has had a distinguished career in the field of criminal justice as city probation commissioner from 1992 to 95, as correction commissioner responsible for Rikers from 1996 to 98, and then as a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and as president of the Vera Institute of Justice. He is the author of a book called Downsizing Prisons, How to Reduce Crime and End Mass Incarceration, published in 2005. Michael, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with this. Um, the commission website where the, where the report is published on closing Rikers, it says closing Rikers is a moral imperative. Is that something that you agree with and uh, from your firsthand and now secondhand experience? Uh, why or why not? Yeah, I do. And and the commission itself, which was really a pretty diverse commission and a, a variety of uh, definitions of diversity, also came to that consensus pretty quickly. And I think that really the thinking is, this is my own opinion, but I think the sense of the commission and Judge Lippman is that, uh, you know, there, there are 
huge problems on Rikers. There have always been problems on Rikers. There have been eras where they're better or worse. <clears throat> but in some fundamental way, Rikers itself is the problem. That's a little overstated. I mean, it's, uh, you know, because you could make Rikers better. I mean, there's that argument, why don't you just make Rikers better? But in some fundamental way, because of where it's located, because of the geography, because of that sort of non-transparency of the whole system, because it's built on landfill, because the infrastructure is crumbling. You know, you could, you could make it better, but you could never make it a sort of model of a good, dignified, progressive system. No amount of money will get you there. And so I think once the commission sort of came to that conclusion, the moving off Rikers was not just obvious but that that became the sort of moral imperative language if you if you if you want a system that's progressive dignified a model we think we can get there then why would we stay on rikers and that that's what led to that conclusion are you surprised that you're here at this point as <laughs> part of this commission saying that this is actually something that the city could do get this jail population low enough i mean from your experience it must be a little bit shocking that we're here having this conversation. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, I mean, my own experiences when I when I became the correction commissioner, I think that, you know, that the system was overcrowded. I, we, there were probably about nineteen, maybe twenty thousand inmates at the time, compared to the nine thousand five hundred now. So there's very little discussion about moving off Rikers. It was sort of how do you control Rikers? How do you get the violence down? That was that was my sort of charge from Mayor Giuliani, who said basically get the violence down or I'll fire you. Um, that and that was that doesn't sound like uh, him. well. That was fair and it was fair enough. Uh, yeah. um, so. You know, at that point, we were just trying to sort of control the place. Fast forward 20 years, the population is less than half of that. Um, it seems like now is the time that you can both have this conversation and you can see clear to actually doing it. I mean, it's not easy. None of us are sanguine about this. It's not like it's not going to involve a huge amount of politics and budget commitment and all that stuff. But yeah, in a historical sense, in 20 years isn't that much time to go from a hugely overcrowded system uh, to this system where you're talking about uh, going to a purely borough-based system and redeveloping Rikers Island, it's, it's surprising, but I think it's also the right thing to do at this time. When you were correction commissioner, did this occur to you? Did you say to yourself, a lot of the problem is where we are here, we really shouldn't be here, but I just have to deal with the day-to-day? -day, or, or did it not even enter people's minds or your mind? Uh, you know, it certainly occurred to me. I mean, did I ever act on it in any way? Um, no. Uh, you know, I think, I think the day I was appointed, I'm pretty sure this is true, the cover story in New York Magazine, which might have come out that day, was Rikers Ready to Blow. Oh <laughs> yeah. I, I remember getting the call from my mother about that. Um, that so, you know, it, there were so many problems. Violence was so high. The, you know, overcrowding was so severe. We were just trying to wrap our hands around how do we sort of get a hold of this? How do we try to do some incremental good stuff? How, how do we sort of make the place a more programmed, humane jail? And I mean, that was our work. So there, there was no real, at least that I was aware of, sort of conversation, either community-based conversation or, or expert conversation on moving off. The conversation was around, we have to get control of the violence in this place. A couple of things I think 
are worth noting is that a lot of the things that you're talking about are still issues that are discussed. The violence on Rikers, it's probably to a different scale. Uh, I mean, it's obviously to a different scale, but there's still those issues being discussed. Um, And then, you know, the other interesting thing about this question that, that Carol just asked is, you know, it's not, this is not something that Mayor de Blasio wanted to do. This is not something that was at the top of his agenda by any means, right? This got pushed by advocates and experts and the city council speaker. Right. And, yeah. No, and, correct. So, so will, you, will you talk a little bit about sort of the work of the commission and being asked to, to join it and, and how that came together for you and your assessment of how, how it went? Yeah. I mean, I think when um, when – Judge Lippman called me and we talked about the commission and the work of the commission. You know, we, we talked for a little bit about the, that not necessarily individuals, but the kinds of folks who should be on the commission. And he and I both agree that while you wanted some sort of usual criminal justice suspects on the commission, of which I guess I'm one, or whether it was me or Richard Aborn or Jeremy Travis, you know, very distinguished, smart people, you didn't want just that. You wanted folks who were business leaders, who were in the real estate business. You wanted formerly incarcerated folks, uh, you know, judges. You really wanted a diverse commission in terms of background, professional experience, knowledge. Um, and I think he did a pretty good job of that. Uh, if you look at the commission, it really, it really is uh, pretty diverse, and he was, he was very attuned to having the voices of the formerly incarcerated. Um, and, you know, the more the commission did its work, it was both sort of coming to, okay, you know, we do think it has to be closed and we have to move to the boroughs, and then the commission, the sub, it was broken at the subcommittees. The subcommittee I headed was, well, if you move to the boroughs, how would that work? How would you pay for it? What would the jails look like? But, you know, accompanied with this, which is why this whole report is not – it's not just a piece of criminal justice reform, which it obviously is, um, but it's also about the redevelopment of this 420-acre parcel of land, which I, I don't think the city will never see another, you know, parcel of land like that ever again. Um, and Marianne Gilmartin, who was on the commission, who's the chief executive of um, Far City Ratner, you know, she really looked at, uh, you know, the, the multiple potential uses for this. So when you wrap it all up, this is not just, you know, a, a huge piece of criminal justice reform, but it's really a big piece of urban planning and redevelopment. Uh, and I think that's what excited a lot of the people on the commission. And and really, in the end, whether you're the mayor or the governor, you know, this is a legacy issue. The politics are obviously huge. The obstacles are, you know, uh, many. But I think in the end, if you can, uh, you know, we, we recommended, uh, uh, you know, huge improvements in the LaGuardia Airport and regional economic development and a better, more fair, smaller, just humane uh, correction system. Uh, you know, that's that's no small thing for any chief executive to have as a legacy issue. Should we be assuming that crime is going to continue to go down and the jail population is going to continue to go down to these extents? I mean, this is a question I remember when Mayor de Blasio did. We won't get into all the sort of strange theater and politics around his announcement and getting out ahead of the Littman Commission. And I won't put you on the <laughs> on the spot there, but chime in if you want to. Um I asked him at that press conference, "Are you? How certain are you that this is really going to be plausible? Are you going to build in, you know, contingency plans for a spike in crime, or, uh, you know, how, how do you think about those numbers? And I know bail reform and supervised release are, are parts of this that 
you know, are mostly going to should be there and should mm-hmm. be happening. But how do you think about those? Numbers? Yeah, I mean, I you know, it, it's 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 a good question. And if you step back a little and, and put the sort of city crime and corrections stuff in a little bit of historical context, on the one hand, the the example of the New York City jail system is it it's the largest example of decarceration in the United States already. Right, we've gone as I said from about twenty two thousand when it peaked to about 9,200 now. It's just a huge decline. But despite that, and that's a good news story, as is our crime decline, but despite that, the commission felt, and Nick Turner, who was the president of Vera, who headed the subcommittee on how low can the population go, I think all of us felt, even with that population decline, there's a lot more we can do, especially, as you say, around the issue of bail reform, supervised release, getting small money bail amounts, off Rikers, uh, more diversion programs. So I, I think we're confident you can get the numbers down. Um, you know, we're in, in any jail systems, and that's why we come to this number of 5,000 ultimately in the building plan we, we did, uh, laid out in the report was for 5,500, right? So you build in a little cushion when you, when, whenever whenever you do this. Uh, yeah, could crime spike? Yes, it could spike. You know, those spikes are usually sort of temporary. And, you know, the fact is, that's a good question. You could ask me that question whether we said it should be 7,000, 10,000, or, you know, 15,000. It could, it could always well, be fe- more. But the feasibility of those numbers changes the whole equation around your subcommittee of no, no, the rural facilities and the plausibility of the whole... No, no, that's correct. But even if you put, even if you put the politics aside and said, yeah, we're just going to build for the current size of the system, 9,500, it would still be a legitimate question to say, well, what if crime goes up? What if you need 10,500? Right, right. And, you know, in the end, when a county has a jail system of whatever capacity, that's what you have. Um, so whether it's 9,000 or as we're recommending 5,500, that's what you have. So if there is a spike um, of, you know, some kind of you know, chain snatchings, I don't know, you know, some kind of crime, then you have to be, have the flexibility to be able to either sort of divert more, maybe you let some folks out early, maybe you build some more community capacity. But I don't think any of us are worried by the fact that, you know, given the current crime levels, even if it, even if it levels off and it's continued, it's continued to go down, we're not, we're not assuming any continued decrease in crime, but hopefully there will be. But that seems to be the trend. So even if it leveled out, even if it increased marginally, I think we're fine. Isn't really, I mean, you have all of these other things which you've described well about what the potential of the island and um, other reforms. But really, in the end, the focus of everyone's attention from the report is the politics of, the, of, of dispersing this population right. amid the boroughs, mm-hmm. and that nobody wants a jail in, near them. Right. How do you overcome that? How can the mayor and the city, with the help of the commission and others who who agree philosophically with the idea that's being expressed, how can you overcome the fear? Right. Yeah, it's a good question. So I think here's how, I mean, I won't say we, I guess, here's how I think about this, but so I think some sense the commission thinks about this. First of all, 
there are already several neighborhoods in New York City that have jails, right? There's a jail in downtown Brooklyn. There's a jail, uh, the Brooklyn House. There's a jail in downtown Manhattan, the Tombs. Uh, there's a, a jail that's vacant in Queens. So, you know, jails have been part of city neighborhoods forever. And so if you just, let's just concentrate on the Brooklyn House just as an example, right? That's been in the Brooklyn Heights community for years, um, you know, it's not that the neighborhood doesn't notice it, but it's continued to flourish. And, the, you know, the, I don't know. I don't know the figures on the increases in, uh, you know, commercial and residential property around that jail, but it's huge. Um, and so the way we think of it is, especially if you look at that jail, that is, in my opinion, a particularly hideous example of early Stalinist architecture. I mean, it's just one of the ugliest things you can imagine. And on top of that, it has DOC vans, triple parked. I mean, it's just incredibly annoying. So one of the things we try to do to deal with the issue you're talking about in the report is show people... Uh, literally pictures of here's what jails will jails will never look like that again you will never build a jail like that so if you look at the new jails being built for the one in downtown denver there's one in san diego um you know when you look at those things you'd never know they were a jail they just look like you know lovely civic buildings everything is underground so you can't see anything and so if you can imagine and we recommended simply uh building new jails on those existing sites so obviously the construction itself will be a pain right no one is going to love that but in the end we will argue those jails will not only look much nicer, um, be far more elegant, if you will, but also serve a variety of community purposes. That's what jails should do now, not just be a jail, but have commercial uh, uh, space on the bottom floor, uh, have all sorts of community rooms, you, you know, have, you can have infant mortality clinics, you know, in, in that, not in the jail, but in separate entrances in that building, mm-hmm. right. And mm-hmm. so, you know, in the end, we would argue, even if you already have a jail, which those neighborhoods do, you will like like um, the new jail uh, far better than the than the current one. And if you don't, so we're recommending a small jail in Staten Island. The mayor obviously has said he doesn't want to do, um, but it will it won't look like a jail. Like you'll never know it's a jail unless someone tells you. So what you're raising, Carol, is a very good question. And obviously, it's not like people clamor for jails. But if you pay attention to the sort of architecture of these things and what they look like, it's a whole new world than it used to be. What is the capacity of the uh, jail in downtown Brooklyn? I believe it's eight to nine hundred. Um, and uh, I think under the I have a little trouble remembering the exact figure. I think it would it would be several hundred more building up in the in the um, in the commission's plan. And you've had uh, or you know the city has had a bunch of Queens elected officials say, hey, yeah, reopen the Queens facility. Right. You know, we're on board with the closure plan. Here's right. a spot. Let's you know let's move this ahead. Um, it is worth noting, especially as you talk about more humane facilities and a different design and more community purpose um, and sort of the function of city jails, which are largely holding folks that are pre-trial, mm-hmm. 75%, somewhere right. around there, mm-hmm. right? And anybody sentenced to a year or under, under a year, Correct. right? So, Correct. you know, we're largely talking about people that one way or another, whether it's a day, two days, a week, or a year, are mm-hmm. returning to New York City 
life fairly quickly. Oh, uh, you know, the vast majority of these folks are coming back to the communities they came from, and that, that really, that is one of the things that led to the recommendation to close Rikers, because these folks are there, as you say, 75 to 80 percent of them are pre-trial. They're not <clears throat> guilty of anything. They're there largely because they can't afford to make their bail, whether they're there for two days, two weeks, or two months. So it's incredibly important, I mean, not just for sort of human dignity and moral reasons, it's incredibly important for them to have access to their families, to their support networks, to the people who they live with in their communities, to their attorneys. Um, and, you know, the process of those folks having contact with people in Rikers is just nightmarish. You know, could you make it better? Yeah, you could make it better, but you could never make it good. Um, so part of the theory is because they are pretrial detainees uh, and they should, you know, other than the fact that they are incarcerated, um, they should live in a dignified environment that has programs uh, that they can take advantage of, but allows them to see their families and their attorneys. That was hugely important to us and leads right to, well, they live in the boroughs, their families are in the boroughs, they're not guilty of anything. They should be held in the boroughs. It was just sort of intuitive. And near the courts. That's, and, that's well, like such a key part of this, too, that's in correct. terms of speeding things up and making people available, cutting down the costs. I mean, right. we haven't even gotten into some of those numbers yet. Um, the, the the proximity, I mean, the Rikers, the travel costs are right. are insane. And it's and you know if you think of the Rikers, it's so part of it is the travel costs because you you know have a thousand to two thousand people every day who you're bussing off the island um, to go to all five boroughs. But it's not just the financial costs. The process of taking these folks, and again, they're pre-trial, they're not guilty of anything, you know, you have to get them up at about three in the morning. It's a whole process to sort of search them, get them to the waiting areas, get them on buses, get them to the courts before nine, have them stay all day. Hopefully they'll have a court appearance, sometimes not. And many times they don't get back until 10 or 11 at night. It is a brutal, brutal process. That might happen in a particular case. 10 or 12 times. You know, that doesn't have to happen too often before you get a little grumpy. Well, that's um, the And thing. so there's no question that that whole process also has a relationship to violence. So the proximity to courts for us, um, for us on the commission, is not just, as you say, an issue of saving money, which you will, because you won't have to have a transportation system the size of a small city, which uh, DOC does. But you won't have to put people through that dehumanizing process, which was incredibly important to us. And one thought that you know I have about this stuff is that when you combine that with some of the things you talk about, about the nature of Rikers Island, you are almost encouraging many people who are there on smaller offenses to escalate. And it's almost the opposite of broken windows policing right. in this atmosphere where you're trying to prevent low-level offenses you know, from becoming bigger things. Um, you know, there's a lot about the logistics that just don't make uh, a lot of sense. The timeline. Okay. Uh, you have lots of advocates who say 10 years is too long. You have controller Scott Stringer who's out there saying three years, although we, we've asked and he doesn't have any roadmap to that. Um, 
when I say we, I mean us at Gotham Gazette. You know, I don't <laughs> want to speak for anybody else, but um, <clears throat> but I've asked that because he, you know, he's talked about that, and and they, they you know, they think it's it's possible. Um, how do you feel about that ten year timeline, and what do you think is is possible? You know, I mean, my own sense, and I know Judge Lippman will say the same thing. If if you can do it faster, you should do it faster. You know, we want it to be both sort of aspirational, but also, uh, uh, you know, deal in somewhat in the world of the sort of real politique. So, you know, we know there's going to be obstacles to this. There will certainly probably be some lawsuits. We know you're going to have to go through probably some version of the Euler process for at least some of these sites. I think the exact process is probably a little up in the air. There's the demolition time, the construction time, and, you know, everyone can use their favorite examples of how long things take to do in New York City. So we felt that, you know, as an outside time, 10 years made sense to us. I totally get the advocates and the governor and Scott Stringer saying do it faster. And I think that do it faster is a good mantra. I mean, I myself wouldn't put a, you know, we can do it in, you know, the next thousand days, given everything we can do. But I certainly uh, get the sort of rush to do it sooner. So can you do it in five years? You know, maybe. I think the key is everyone has to be driving this home um, and operating like we want to do it in three. That's fine. You know, live like you want to do it in three, and it'll happen, and in that way, it'll happen as soon as it possibly can. But there's, you know, there's no question, both from the policy side, the fiscal side, the political side, um, there is a lot to do here. Um, You mentioned that one of the things that would be a savings is the transportation infrastructure. Right. I probably should know this already, but what is the position of the correction officers' union on this idea? Um, well, I'm pretty sure uh, they're against it, uh, uh, and you know it's an interesting it's an interesting issue because on the one hand, there's no question that in, at the end of this, at least at least for the fiscal plan the commission did. Right, we looked at the what we spend now on Rikers and what we would spend for a system that was half the size um, and also in incredibly efficient high tech jails, and so we come up with a huge amount of savings. And the savings, of course, is mostly from the workforce. So I think there, I'm I'm, I'm going to be a little wrong on some of these figures, probably, but there's about ten thousand five hundred or so uniform positions, give or take, on the island now. And I think we said when you have this new system. And you know half the half the population in very different jails. You could probably have closer to four or five thousand. So there's no question. On the one hand, that's a big job cut. And I, I should say, in this whole plan, it's the only area where there's a job cut because this is a gigantic jobs program, especially in the sort of construction, architectural, service industry. You know, it's 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 this adds tens of thousands of jobs in New York City, but not those jobs. But I guess the argument. I would make is, from the commission point of view, first of all, we assume it all happens by attrition, and not even full attrition. That is, roughly five to 600 correction officers leave the workforce a year. In our figures, we said you still have to replace half of them, because you can't have a system like this where you just don't bring in any new folks, especially if you want to change the culture of the place, which we haven't really talked about, which is incredibly important. But at the end of this, while it is undeniably true, you'll have a smaller workforce, 
you will have a better, more sophisticated, more highly trained workforce. I would argue you'll have a happier, safer workforce. I don't believe there's a correction officer in New York City who wakes up in the morning and says to you know, uh, his wife or her husband, you know, honey, I'm, I'm leaving early today because I can't wait to get to AMKC on Rikers sure. Island. I mean, no one wants to do that. So if you're a correction officer who lives in the city and where most of them live, and you have an opportunity to, live, to work in a sort of dignified, safe, light, modern environment, why wouldn't you want to do that? Um, and that's where you'll be, we're arguing, in 10 years. So will it be a smaller workforce? Yes. But it'll be a safer, more highly trained, and I would argue uh, be a workforce with much higher satisfaction levels that you have now. And I, I, I'll say, and I think, and uh, one of the things the union is probably saying, and I think it's a legitimate point, is, look, we have problems on Rikers now, right? I, we have to deal with stuff now. Uh, you know, That's really what they are saying. From yeah. what I've seen, they're yeah. not even, they don't even <clears throat> want to talk about this right. tenure. They're saying, what are you doing now? Yeah. We have violence, guards getting slashed, I, I think that's a fair, a totally fair point on their part. And the city has to do more than one thing at once. There's no question there's work to be done on Rikers. Violence is certainly too high, whether it's against the inmates or, or against officers. So there's a huge amount of work to be done that's going to require all sorts of different kinds of investment, not just financial investment. So the city has to, during this transition period, make Rikers better and safer than it is. I think the union raising the concern that, you know, you're going to ignore us because all your attention is going to be on where you want to be 10 years ago, that's fair. They, they cannot be ignored. That's a good point. Well, in addition to all the things that you just raised, from a cost perspective, um, as the report says, we're spending $250,000 per inmate per year, and most of that is personnel cost. And the cost per employee is over $200,000 a person. Correction officers have the highest rate of overtime now of any, right. <clears throat> any workforce. So they're, they're collecting overtime, which is driving up the amount of their um, compensation. And we started looking at, we haven't published this anywhere, but we started looking at turnover in jobs. And... There, it also has a very high number of new recruits who leave very quickly, who get into this and say, mm -hmm. and we're putting money into training right. and bringing these people on, and then they're leaving very quickly. Right. So the entire nature of the workforce over time, as you lower the number of inmates and you disperse them, would probably change as well. But the structure of the compensation and, and, and the expectations that you have for overtime would probably change also, and that would go into the savings. And I'll just add quickly mm -hmm. that under Mayor de Blasio, even as the, the inmate and detainee population has decreased, the size of the DOC force has increased significantly, um, which again, they're dealing some... Now, now, part of the issue here, and you can obviously speak to this much better than, than I, but that when you're uh, reducing the population, often you're leaving, you know, the, the folks that are remaining are the, you know, people accused of more violent crime. So you are, you know, sort of intensifying that pool, plus the layout, et cetera. Um, and there are things that obviously the, the guards need to work on as well. Um, but 
but that headcount has increased, which could create some headaches down the road, maybe that this mayor won't have to deal with. Um, and he has made some reforms in terms of the things that happen on, on Rikers Island. Mm-hmm. I don't know how closely you've watched that, but I know you know they're instituting all sorts of new right. programming and education and things that, that go to these culture issues. Yeah, and uh, you know the, the points you and Carol are raising are, are, are really good, valid points. You know, one of the, if you step back and look at the, both the money and staffing levels of Rikers Island, and compare them to literally any correctional system on the planet. Um, it is the most richly staffed system in the world. Even if you throw in sort of Scandinavia, Norway, and Finland, which are the you know always the examples of sort of best practice. So, um, and there's all sorts of reasons for that, good and bad. But because that's our starting point, one of the reasons we say this ultimately um, will actually save the city money when you get to a sort of steady state, even after the billions of dollars you have to spend to, to build these facilities, is because you'll never have to have staffing levels like that in a new modern system. You know, one of the reasons, as you're saying, that staffing levels are high on Rikers is you have these old, out-of-date facilities, they have terrible lines of sight, they have almost no modern technology, and so you tend to make up for that uh, by having more people. You won't have to do that. And to Carol's point on the overtime, I, I really can't explain to you the high levels of overtime on Rikers even now. It makes no sense to me. And even in corrections, you know, on the one hand, and, you know, city workers like overtime. It's more money. It, it increases the size of their pension. But at some point, and I believe uh, it, this was true when I got to corrections, and I think it's probably true now, at some point there's too much overtime, even for the workforce. Um, because what overtime means as a general proposition in corrections is if you're an officer and you've just finished an eight-hour shift, you're now working another eight-hour shift. You know, and that's these are hard, stressful jobs, right? And and you know, the union's very clear about this. It's a it's a high stress job, and they're correct about that. And if you work two or even sometimes three shifts in a row, nothing good can come of that, either for you or the folks you're working with or uh, uh, supervising. So the system just has too much overtime now. It shouldn't have that much overtime for a whole bunch of reasons, but it shouldn't have that overtime for operational reasons. So when we think about here's where we're starting from, you know, the the bad news is it's a, it's, it's a really richly staffed system, probably too richly staffed. But the good news is when you can imagine getting from here to there in a completely different environment, new system, new operating procedures, new kinds of staff, um, the savings is huge. And then finally, to Carol's point, you know, one of the things that we did in the um, commission report, uh, it's not highlighted probably, but we we funded, so to speak, in our fiscal plan, uh, doubling the training, doubling the amount of time and training. Because again, the best pra- the best practice in the world, actually, in places like Scandinavia, Germany, which take two years to train their staff, um, and uh, you know that's no no one in the United States does that. But we recognize you're going to have to change the culture of this. You're going to have to have different kinds of correction officer expertise, people dealing with folks who are mentally ill, um, uh, all sorts of educational and learning issues. So we really want to ramp up the, the 
sort of requirements for correctional officers, the kind of training they get, because as you say, no good can come from A, high turnover generally, that's always a problem, but especially high turnover of new staff who you've just invested time in training, and those are the staff you want to stay and build. And we we both put a lot of thought into that, and to the city's credit, the task forces that Mayor de Blasio has asked Zach Carter and Liz Glazer to um, to head one of those task forces, which I also happen to be on, is looking specifically at culture and training issues. So this is this is a big part of getting from here to there. Very interesting. So we're in our last minute here with Michael Jacobson, uh, executive director of the CUNY Institute for State and Local Governance, former correction commissioner under Mayor Giuliani, and uh, one of the key uh people on the Independent Commission on New York City Criminal Justice and Incarceration Reform. That was the Lippman Commission, uh, organized by the city council speaker. And now, as you just say, part of the task force that uh, one of the task forces that the mayors put together. Um, so I guess my final uh, question is just what are the what are the last, you know, the next key things to look for here in this process, right? It's a 10-year process, let's say. Um, what are you looking for early in 2018 that people, our listeners and others, should be thinking about? Well, there are a few key steps in implementation. The city has obviously put together these task forces to start looking at this issue very specifically. It's just released an RFP, a request for proposals for uh, architects and designers to start looking at and designing a sort of master plan, which is exactly right. That's exactly what the city uh, should be doing. So that process really has to get going. The city has to sort of develop a timeline on how and whether it's going to do ULERP and when that land use review and when that process is going to start. And the budget office has to start thinking about the sort of fiscal plan. What pieces of this have to appear in the four-year expense budget, 10 years, same with the capital budget. They have to start laying out what the commitments are going to be, certainly by the time the next executive budget rolls around. So I think the city is certainly on top of this, but it's, you know, the time to do this is now. Okay. Michael Jacobson, thank you. We'll be watching to see what your task force and, and uh, other reports say, and uh, and people should be watching to see as that RFP is answered by bidders, I believe, due in, in December sometime, and they'll they say they're going to make an announcement early next year. Michael, thank you for joining us. Well, today. thank you, folks, for having me. Thank you. Thanks, Carol. Bye.